when we're faced with the crucifixion of Jesus, like we just were in Mark 15, a common question that we might ask is, is why did Jesus have to die? And and that's a good question. Many, many books have been written to answer this question. Uh, churches teach classes to bring, to bring clarity to this question. And I'm sure many bloggers have, have written blog posts to answer this very question. And that's, and that's good because answering this question, it's, it's not unimportant. In fact, it's really quite essential for the follower of Jesus to be able to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? However, on on, on this Good Friday, as we reflect upon and as we remember the death of Jesus, I I want us to to wrestle with a a slightly different question. Not simply, why did Jesus have to die, but but rather, why why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Or or more simply put, put, why, why was Jesus crucified? You see, reflecting on the death of Jesus, many of us have been conditioned to think of of his his death as the scandal, when in reality, it's it's not the death itself that was so scandalous. I mean, certainly it was awful, the only righteous man to ever walk this earth unrighteously put to death. But but listen, many many great men and and many great women have have seen their lives end in in untimely and unjust ways. And so it, it isn't just the death of Jesus that's so scandalous. Listen, it's... It's the way in which Jesus died that should cause our skin to crawl and, and, and in our stomachs to turn and our, and our hearts to burst. His, his death on the cross is, is the scandal. The, the cross is scandalous. But, but looking around our, our world today, you could, you could make an argument that the cross is, is one of the least scandalous things around. I mean, sure, some people get upset if, if you— put a cross up in a public space, but but a lot of us probably have a rather large collection of, of crosses. We've got chains and jewelry that, that we wear. Maybe we even have tattoos that are on our bodies. Some of us probably have artwork of crosses displayed in our homes and our offices and our vehicles. And the cross is now, in our modern times, undeniably the universal symbol of our faith, of, of Christianity. And, and rightly so, we, we should celebrate it. We should rejoice in it. But listen, the thought of this would have been absolutely absurd, absolutely absurd to those in Jesus' time. These, these individuals, all of them, uh, Jews, Gentiles, both, they, they could have never imagined decorating their homes with a cross or wearing a necklace with a cross on it. And that's because the, the cross t- t- to them was, was so horrifically scandalous. But, but, but why? Why was it so, so scandalous? Let's take a look at that real quick. One, one theologian writes this about the ancient Jewish perception of the crucifixion. He writes, From the very beginning, the, the Christian faith was distinguished from the religions which surrounded it by its worship of the crucified Christ. In Israelite understanding, someone executed in this way was rejected by his people, cursed amongst the people of God by the God of the law, and excluded from the covenant of life. Anyone who condemned by the law as a blasphemer suffers such a death is accursed and excluded from the circle of the living and from the fellowship of God. Uh, the, the Jews would have been absolutely repulsed by the cross. And with respect to the, the Gentile understanding of the crucifixion, he, he writes this, to the humanism of antiquity and so to the Gentiles, the, the crucified Christ was an embarrassment. Crucifixion was regarded as the most degrading kind of punishment. Thus, Roman humanism always felt, quote, the religion of the cross to be unesthetic, unrespectable, 
and perverse. It was regarded as an offense against good manners to speak of this hideous death for slaves in the presence of respectable people. Uh, The Gentiles were repulsed by even the mentioning of the cross in conversation. And so if this is the case, then then why did God in his in his perfect sovereignty and in his perfect providence, pick pick this moment in history, pick this form of punishment. Why did he do it? Why did he put his son on that cross? Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Well, well, some of us might say because this form of punishment was, was such a painful kind of punishment that, that God knew that the great power of sin needed the great pain of this punishment. And yes, well, the crucifixion was unimaginably painful. We miss the point and purpose of the cross if we focus on the pain. You see, the power of the cross lies not in its pain, but the the power of the cross lies in its shame. You see, if the death of Jesus is is understood merely as as an unjust death, even a a painful, gruesome death, the the point of the whole thing is is lost. And, And here's why. It's because crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to one's personal dignity. It was was crafted to be second to none in the way that it totally humiliated and dehumanized its victim. And so the the power of the cross, it, it hinges on its inherent shamefulness. And Jesus was shamed on that cross. He was naked before all to see on that cross. And unlike other forms of sin, shame draws from the, from the depths of a radical, special kind of evil. Because while there's a certain sort of perverse celebration that surrounds certain forms of wickedness, there is no glamour. There is no celebration that surrounds shame. When we shame someone, we're declaring them to be utterly worthless. When we shame someone, we're declaring them to be disposable. When we shame someone, we're saying that they are trash on the side of the road. And so when Jesus was crucified, that is what we were saying to him. We were saying that he was worthless, that he was disposable, that he was trash on the side of the road. The cross is so scandalous because it's it's so shameful. And perhaps we now in our modern times don't understand how awfully shameful crucifixion was because we we just have a limited understanding of the nature of crucifixion. You know, the the first phase of crucifixion, it began long before the cross as as they would have taken Jesus and they would have whipped him 39 times to be exact. And many many pictures show a frail Jesus in a a loincloth receiving this phase of the punishment. But but at this point, he he wouldn't have been in a loincloth. No, he would have been completely naked, totally exposed, and tied to, to a post, bent over in a, in a degrading, humiliating position, exposing his backside for, for maximum effect. And then after that, they would have, would have taken him. And they would have paraded him through the, the busy streets of Jerusalem. And he would have been ridiculed by, by all those gathered around along the sides of the street there to watch and be entertained by his, by his demise, by his shame. And people would have thrown all sorts of trash at him. They would have thrown fecal matter at him at his bloody, naked body made its way through the streets. He would have experienced in that moment shame upon shame upon shame. And at the the actual point of, of crucifixion after the nails had been hammered through his wrists and his feet, obliterating the nerves in there, causing such intense agony. The cross would have then been lifted up and Jesus' entire tortured body now elevated and exposed there for all to see. And the only way that he would have been able to 
to, to get a breath would have been to push himself up by those feet or pull himself up by his arms, either of which would have caused such immense pain. We, we, we couldn't even imagine it. So much pain, so much shame, and not to mention not to mention all the, the secondary issues that were going on, like the inability to control your bodily functions and insects feasting on open wounds, an unquenchable sense of thirst. His, his muscles would have been cramping up. His torn up back from that whipping would be scraping against the, the rough wood of the cross. And, and while it seems like we're, it seems like we're turning our attention again away from the, the shame and onto just the, the pain, what we need to remember is the context in which all of these things are happening. You see, for Middle Eastern cultures, particularly an ancient Near Eastern culture like in Jesus' time, they had what one writer calls an acute sense of personal honor lodged in the body. So here's what, what that means. Harm, harm inflicted on the body was, was not merely physical pain administered. It was, it was internal shame made external for all to see. For, for example, if someone's punishment for, for stealing was amputating their hand, it would be seen as, as much much more than, than, than physical cruelty or a permanent handicap. It would mean that the amputee would, would carry around with him the visible marks of dishonor and, and shame for the rest of his life. Anything done to the body would have been understood as exceptionally cruel, not just because it inflicted pain, but, but even more so because it caused dishonor and, and shame. They would have experienced shame upon shame upon shame. And so, so there Jesus would have been. I mean, this Jesus, the one who was with God in the very beginning, the creator of the universe, the only perfect person in, in, in all of human history, there he would have been shamed on that cross, alone on that cross. And I have to believe that, that every single person listening and watching right now has experienced in, in some way or another that shame and that overwhelming and oppressive feeling of loneliness that shame brings with it. It's, it's said that, that, that shame is even different than guilt because while guilt is something, while guilt is feeling bad about something we've done, shame is feeling bad about who we are. Guilt says, I've, I've done something bad. Shame says, I, I am bad. And for some of us, the, the shame that we feel, it's, it's been at the hands of someone else. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a stranger Maybe it was a loved one, someone we knew, but they inflicted wounds upon us and they sinned against us. And then we've been left alone, holding on to, to the shame of that. And, and it can feel like, it can feel like drowning. It can feel like darkness. It can feel like isolation. For others, maybe, maybe we brought that shame upon ourselves and, and we were living for ourselves and, and we chose self over others. We chose self over God. We've made decisions that in the name of success or going after our own pleasure, they've, they've actually led us to, to great, great shame and, and with it, this crushing sense of loneliness. And for some of us, this, this shame has been exposed and others know about it and they've seen it while, while others, we, we still secretly hold on to that shame inside and we're afraid to let anyone know what's been done to us or what we've done and, and we live isolated and alone with the weight of our, of our shame. Ultimately, this is what sin does. Sin, it, it brings about shame, and it always has. You can look at the very beginning. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. They chose self over others. They chose self over God. And, and what happened when they did this? What happened when they chose sin? Shame came flooding in. And, and sin and shame, what do they bring? They, they brought separation. 
And that's, that's the biggest problem with sin and shame. They, they, they isolate because that's where sin's power thrives. That's where shame's power thrives in, in the darkness, in isolation. And, and we're seemingly left there on our own to deal with our shame by ourselves. And, and all of us, we all deal with our shame in different ways. Some of us, we, we bury our shame. And we try to put it out of our mind and we attempt to ignore it and we come up with excuses for, for why what we've done isn't that big of a deal or why what happened to us isn't really a problem and certainly there are worse things that have happened to, to other people and we, we stuff it down and we pretend that everything is fine. But, but for those of us who do this, we know that only works for so long until we end our day and we put our heads on our pillows at night and the thoughts come racing back in and the shame comes flooding back in. Others of us, we, we numb our shame and we try to distract ourselves from the shame we feel by, by anesthetizing ourselves, right? Through, through, through entertainment or through food or through drugs or through alcohol or, or whatever it might be. And, and what we do is we run after other things that we think will satisfy us and bring us pleasure and pacify the shame we feel. But, but for those of us who do this, we know. We know that only works for so long until the until the numbing wears off and the shame rears its ugly head again, seemingly stronger than it was before. And finally, others, we, we work off our shame. You know, maybe, maybe we come to church, maybe we go to small group and we're involved and we serve others and we work hard, but, but listen, it's, it's not for the right reasons. It's not out of a heart of gratitude, but it's because we are trying to justify ourselves. We are trying to work away the shame. We're, we're trying to make ourselves clean. We're trying to free ourselves of our shame. And for those of us who do this, we know. Man, we know how exhausting this gets. And it's, it's only so long before we crack under the weight of working in our own strength to make ourselves clean. And we see that we've actually done absolutely nothing to fix our shame problem. Because ultimately, our shame problem is a sin problem. And it's a, it's a massive problem that all of us have, that all of us face. How do we find, how do we find freedom from the control and havoc that, that sin wreaks on our lives? How do we get ourselves out un, from under the, the oppressive weight and the loneliness of our shame? Because as we, just, as we just saw, nothing, nothing we do seems to work. We, we can't bury it. We, we can't numb it. We can't work it off ourselves. And, and so, what can we do? And this actually brings us back to our main question. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And here's why. Here's why Jesus had to die on the cross, because in his death on that cross, Jesus once and for all gave himself over to our greatest enemy, to sin and to the awful, awful consequences that come with sin, shame and death. And he gave himself over to sin on that shameful, lonely cross to, to go to war for us, to, to fight for us. He suffered shame upon shame upon shame on the cross because no other form of execution in human history would have been comparable to, would have been proportionate with the extremity of our condition under the power of sin's great evil. Why was Jesus crucified? Well, it's because the greatness of our shame and the greatness of our sin required the greatest of sacrifices. And while he took upon himself our shame, and while it seems like he was completely and utterly defeated on that cross, it was, it was actually there on that cross that Jesus was, was ultimately victorious. 
where he won the battle against death and he won the battle against shame and sin once and for all, but, but, but it's a hidden victory. And it's hidden to all except those who can see it with the eyes of faith. What, what, what looks like great defeat is actually a massive victory. And this is, the, this is the paradox of the cross. This is the strength of weakness. Yes, we have a shame problem. Yes, we have a sin problem. And yes, there is nothing we can do about it. But, but Jesus did something about it. Only he could fix our shame problem. Only he could fix our sin problem. And, and we have, and this is the good news, we have access to his victory, but it's not through our strength. We don't work to get this victory. We access his victory. We access his strength through our weakness, through humility. We, we access it by recognizing that we can't do it on our own and, and that we need him. The, the only way through the wilderness to victory and to redemption is the road of, of humility. So here's what I want us to do right now. I, I want us to receive this great gift. I want us to, to receive his victory right now. I want us to humble ourselves before the mighty cross of Christ and to recognize that, that, that each and every one of us, we are powerless against sin. We are powerless against our shame. And so, so would we stop burying our shame? Would we stop numbing it? Would we stop trying to clean ourselves up? And in this moment right now, would we humble ourselves before him, acknowledging that we need him? You know, one of the ways that we do this as a church, as a family of faith for hundreds of years now is, is through communion. And in, in his last gathering with his disciples before he was crucified at a, at a Passover dinner, Jesus took some bread and he grabbed some wine and he told his disciples that as often as they eat this bread and as often as they drink the wine, they should remember him. Remember what he's done for them. His, his body broke and his blood poured out for them. And, and in that moment, I'm sure they had, they had no idea what he was talking about. But we do. We know the story and, and we remember it now. And so, so let's take these next few moments as this next song is, is sung over us. Let's take this time to, to, to remember, to reflect upon and, and, and to receive once again the victory that Jesus won for us on that cross, that he defeated the power of our sin and that he cleanses us from all our shame. And at the end of the song, we'll take communion together.